Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. What is the most important thing, if you're going to just boil it down to its bare essential, that Christians need to know about sharing their faith? You know, I think the most important thing that most of us don't realize is that we can do it in ways that fit us. One of the biggest problems I see, Bobby, with evangelism in the church is there's often, it's often presented as something you do one way. It's usually my way mm-hmm. or the pastor's way. Right. And then you kind of project their style onto everyone else. One of the things we've learned, one of the things that really liberated me to be involved in evangelism is what I learned through Bill Hybels and then we later put into our course, Becoming a Contagious Christian. And that is, even in the Bible, there's all kinds of approaches to sharing their faith. They didn't all do it the same way, and they didn't lay guilt trips on each other to do it the same way. So, for instance, Peter was very direct and confrontational. Paul was more intellectual. Uh, The blind man that Jesus healed was more testimonial. Uh, Matthew had a party. He was more relational. And there's six of these, and we just go through this and try to say, God knew what he was doing when he made you. Let him work through your personality. I say that to everyone I teach. Don't try to be me. Let's not clone each other. Let's be authentically who God made us and then be used to reach other people. That's good. Mark Middleberg, one of the leaders in evangelism today, evangelism training and leading people to Jesus. And one of the things that we don't want to give off on our, our Wednesday night series in apologetics or on Sunday with our reach out series is to say that there is one certain method by which we present the gospel. All right. Or one certain set of social skills or personality types or what have you. It's a great, 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 I hope it's a clarifying interview that God can use you with your skills and with your gifts. For example, if you're just, I mean, type A, you're just, you know, you're there, you don't mind walking into a room full of strangers and, hey, I'm so-and-so, and you can just make friends, just boom, just like that, a direct approach is going to be very, it's going to connect well with your personality. And sometimes if you don't come from that persuasion, you may be a little bit laid back or let me analyze this first and then develop a plan. It may be horrifically awkward if you try to become a direct Peter, right? And there's some, some people, maybe God has gifted you with just relational skills. Like, hey, how are you just soft and, and merciful and, and understanding? And, and you disarm people by the way and the gifts that God has given you by the mercy route. So for you, it, it just depends upon the Holy Spirit leading you to present the truth. But the point is that we actually present the truth, all right? There's going to be different ways, different methods by which God uses you. Some of you are very analytical. You just you know these things and these arguments and so forth. And if you connect with another, let's say, nerd, all right, uh, they're going to be like, wow, okay, so you study, you know, and throw out a big philosophers where you're like, yeah, I've been, I was reading their work there. Really? I have too. And I can, and then you're able to connect with them on that level and so forth and so on. So what, what, just wanted to put that out there tonight. And, uh, when we, as tonight's topic is the six major worldviews, how do you talk to people who don't come from a Christian background? Let's not any one of us misunderstand 
What we're going to talk about is there's a certain specific way to do it. The point is that we actually develop a plan to do it. So if you want to make, um, does anybody not have an outline? Okay, who has the outlines? The pile. Okay, awesome. Um, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, and this is our verse for this series. Go ahead and mark it down. Uh, it be a great verse to memorize. It says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a what? A defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. So this is a little bit of review. We are supposed to be intellectually prepared. We are supposed to be Christians that read. Amen? All right, we've got a lot of stuff in the church today. People are like, I'm just going to go on Sunday morning and listen, and that's it. No, 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 we, we should be plugged into podcasts and, you know, reading books, and not just some of the books that we find, you know, Chicken Soup for the Soul. All that. I mean, that's, that's fine, bathroom reading, but, you know, to go a, little bit, go a little bit deeper than that and say, not so much do I enjoy this book, but... I'm going to have the objective of my life is to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. So even stuff that I may not, it may be kind of like getting through some gristle and some hard stuff and some difficult concepts. I'm going to read that in love for my unsafe friends. Okay? So, so, so we have to, and we're going to continue as a church to try to get away from the me mentality in every aspect. And one of those comes to what we put in through media and reading and so forth. So there's some great books that we can recommend, but begin to, if you're not already thinking along those lines, say, what books can I get a hold of? What podcasts, what random videos on YouTube can I access in order to prepare myself in love for people who may have these objections. So, speaking of objections, here are just two, this is introduction, two major causes of reaction to Christianity, or we could call these distortions of the truth. In other words, when you come to present the gospel, sometimes these two major objections are behind what people say. Number one, anti-intellectualism. In other words, people think Christianity equals intellectual suicide. And here's, the, here's what some people have heard or think that Christians believe. Quote, there's no reason to learn about science. We have God's inerrant word. This was huge during the Scopes trial. Remember that? The monkey trial way back in the day? The fundamentalist, or, or we could say the Bible-believing Christians, what they started to do was they... Anybody remember seeing those signs back in history books? They would nail up these big signs that said, read your Bible. Now, should we read God's word? Yeah. But what the world saw is that Christians say, all I have to do is bury my head in the sand from science, from philosophy, from history. And as long as I'm reading the book of John, then therefore I'm fine. Well, the question is, is God's truth, y'all tell me, is God's word opposed to finding truth in nature? No. I mean, shouldn't we believe as Christians that all truth is God's truth? And what sometimes people may think about you is that you're this guy. You're this girl, all right? So we want to say, bring back on what we're going to learn through this series, ways that we can say, here's what Christianity is, here's what it's not. Secondly, the religion versus the relationship. In other words, the concept that they think that Christianity is rule-based 
moralism. Anybody want to take a stab at what we mean by moralism as opposed to Christianity? Yeah. Yes. Yes, bingo. And here's here's the way that, that it's often practiced, especially to younger people. Quote, you need to go to church. It will help you be or become a good or a better person. Time out. Let's discuss this. When a lost person hears this, what is the subtle insult within this statement that a lot of times church people never catch? Yeah. It's like, it's like what they hear is that unless you go and sit on a hard seat with people that smell funny and act funny and sing funny and look funny and hear some guy get up and lecture about something that you have no interest in from, stri- from strictly 11 a.m. to strictly 12 p.m., then you stink at life. You're going to be a horrible parent, you're a tax cheat, you're a scum dog, and you only feed your dog once every five days. <laughs> I mean, it's those types of things that people equate Christianity, a.k.a. church, with rule-based moralism. So if you're talking to someone who you think the Holy Spirit is leading you, they think that Christianity is a bunch of rules, which the ultimate rule, got to go to church, got to go to church, got to go to church, and then once you've been to church, you still got to go to church. When the Holy Spirit says this is what the person believes, what is maybe something quick that you can come back with to say without saying you don't understand Christianity, but this is not Christ? The answer that you're going to give, the groundwork is going to be grace. Anything come to mind? You don't need to go to church to be a Christian. Okay, but, but then again, when... A lot of people do ask that question. It would be dangerous if we got into that area because some people will ask me, do you have to be saved? you have to be a Christian? Go to church in order to be a Christian. We say, well, it's, salvation is not by works, right? It's all by grace. But the question, I always come back with that because that happens, especially since I've been in Franklin County. Have you guys gotten that? You invite somebody to church and they say, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, do you? What's the presupposition there? What's their assumption? What are they trying to get away with? They're basically trying to say that basically it's a room full of hypocrites is what they're saying. Okay. But what they try to use is, well, I can be in church just sitting here under the tree or going fishing or going thing. Okay. All right. And my answer to that is, yes, you can. You don't have to go to church to be saved. But it also the book says, how do they... Learn unless they hear. All right. So you got to hear first. Okay. Okay. And yes, I can tell you a little bit, but I'm not going to be able to tell you everything in the little bit of time that we have to talk. Mm-hmm. All right. And a whole lot more if you go and sit there and listen to someone. Okay. Okay. Good. So basically, Christianity is not just you alone with God. Christianity is is community and so forth. Sometimes when people say, well, "I can I can have church in my boat or my deer stand," I'm like, "Bro." You're way more spiritual than me because when I'm sitting out in a boat, I'm thinking of snagging something big. If I'm in a stand or with a gun in the wood, I'm thinking about blowing something away. I'm not, you know, thinking amazing grace. And, you know, so that's just, but, but often what, what I'll come back with is, is the assumption, right? It's, it all goes back to a heart issue. You say, well, if, if, if God is really real and he actually sent his son Jesus into space time, and he lived a perfect life and kept all of the Old Testament laws and fulfilled that. 
And he, he died a brutal, horrific death on a cross with all of his best friends running out of him, on him. And then he came back to life and he offered salvation and forgiveness and a clean conscience and a clean slate. And if that's true, and I say that I believe that and I follow him, probably the best question would be to maybe turn that around and not say, well, can I get away with as little as I can get away with as far as commitment? But what can I do to spread that message of King Jesus? Right. In other words, change it around, because often when people come with that, all it is is rule-based moralism on a Sunday morning, they're thinking, what's the minimum I can give in order to get the maximum out? But if we see God's grace in Jesus Christ for who he truly is, that's going to revolutionize my life. I'm like, bro, Sunday morning is starting point. I mean, get plugged into a local church, man, that's just assumed. I want to say, what can I do to reach people outside of that? So it it all changes. But this is a huge one, at least that I've experienced in my little over two and a half years here in Franklin County. But there's tons of these. Um, We just wanted to hit two tonight just by way of intro. And let's get to the six major worldviews, if we can, and knock these out. Number one would be atheism. There are three kinds. Number one, practical atheism. Uh, it's indifferent to God. In other words, the way that they live, God doesn't really factor in there one way or another. Secondly would be weak atheism, which means that God's existence doesn't matter because it can't be solved. In other words, we don't sit around. It doesn't make a difference in my life of how many angels can sit on the head of a pen. Anybody? Did that factor in how you spent your money last month? If so, that'd be a little weird, you know. Um, it's not agnosticism, which we'll get to in just a moment. It just means that it's a question of irrelevance, so it doesn't matter. Therefore, it doesn't, for me, exist in any practical sense. Number three, strong atheism, which means science or this philosophical argument points away from God's existence, which means that if you believe in God, you are what, according to that? You're not Unintelligent. Okay. All right. So you could be ignorant. Okay. You could you could have some, you could have some motor skills upstairs, but you could be ignorant, or oh, watch out! You've been duped. There, there's actually um, an atheist that I, I was corresponding with some on Twitter. I don't normally get into a lot of Twitter wars um, with people because it's only 140 characters. And be like, you need to be saved, and Jesus Christ is all, and then you run out, and you have to do another one, you know. But uh, but this guy put a put a picture on on Twitter of his eight year old son, and this guy's a professional golfer in Spain. It's very random. It's, it's by the way, I think every single one of you, if you have internet access, you need to get a Twitter account and you need to be involved. It's one of the best ways to get the gospel out and to connect with people. If you put a hashtag like truth, politics, everybody who's on Twitter who's searching that may see your tweet. So it's a great, great tool. But he put a picture of his eight-year-old son reading Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. Put it out on Twitter. This is great stuff. I'm teaching my eight-year-old son rabid, new, anti-God atheism. So anyway, I ended up corresponding with with this guy, and his final response of why God doesn't exist was like, all you need to do is watch Zeitgeist. And I was like, all you need to do is stop smoking crack. You know, it's just like, come on. But I, I didn't say that, all right? I didn't say that. I was, you know, it's one of those things, pray before you type. 
And then there's that delete button when the Lord says you shouldn't have. So, but the thing is, uh, and I just want to say that too, a lot of times when you get into it with a person, there's going to be those emotions and that frustration. Like, are you, is it, that is a garbage argument. It may be a garbage argument, but to be able to respond with grace and with truth and with persuasion is something that only comes from the Holy Spirit. All right. We've got, we've got to get that. Because we can outfox people intellectually, we can be smarter than them, but at the end of the day, if it's a boxing match and they feel that you are beating them down, sometimes that's, that needs to happen if you have somebody who's, for example, public forum, if you speak up in a public forum and you give a bad argument, you have just set yourself up to be taken down. That's totally fine if it's done with grace and with love, but often when it's a personal argument, it's much more or a personal, let me say, discussion, it's much more personal. And so. it, it just it makes me wonder, when you get to the strong atheism, and I've definitely encountered that, probably encountered every level within the past year, that it makes you wonder, if they don't believe, why do they fight so hard against something that doesn't exist? I mean, I don't believe in fairies, but I haven't declared a personal war mm-hmm. on fairies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Anybody, anybody have a response to that? What, what Trish just said, if you don't believe in something, why do you dedicate so much time and energy and I guess we could say emotional hatred towards destroying something that doesn't exist. They can never know the light. What's that? They can never know the light. They can. So you're saying there's no atheists? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they just can't feel deep inside themselves that anything they say is true. I wouldn't think that they could possibly. Yeah, well, maybe I am. Okay. Oh, All right. It goes back to pride. That, that, Uh-oh. Uh, we can do it on our own. We don't need God. That is a weakness. It is a crime. And I, within myself, am big enough to do I don't need your God. I can do it myself. And it's pride. Mm, okay. All right. I don't know that sometimes it's not a case of they're actually under conviction and they're fighting. Okay. Because I've seen, you know, like when I was in the Navy, I had dozens of situations like that where I'd have guys arguing that way. And I could see it in their face. They were under conviction, mm-hmm. and they would just argue more vehemently mm. because they didn't want to let loose. It's that it's a control thing, really. What it is, they don't want to let lose control of themselves and release control of their life to a higher power. Fundamentally, mm. so it so it comes down often to an issue of pride. I've seen that a lot too. Um, homosexuals that have some family members claim to be that way and like they claim that it's natural and they can't help it but they claim that but then they push so hard mm-hmm. and shoving it down my throat that it's okay and that's how they should live and it's perfectly fine well if it's natural and it's okay morally and everything then why do you have to push so hard and to make it that way, to make people believe that it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to get into this big time next week about responses to bring, but the, tonight it's basically the one-minute apologists and stuff that you guys can have in your pocket. One way quickly that you can bring up here that's not going to bring you down a long evidential road would be this. 
Why shouldn't belief in God be a properly basic belief? Last week we talked about that with William Lane Craig. Properly basic beliefs like 2 plus 2 is 4 because that's simply logical mathematical truth. Things such as the world is real. Unless you talk to certain surfer guys who are out after a big day and a long time in the car inhaling certain illegal substances. I'm serious. I'm serious. Um, why shouldn't belief in God be a properly basic belief? And you can change it on them by saying, why shouldn't you have to prove God's non-existence? And they say, well, how can you believe the evidence? Whoa, 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 whoa. Who said that I as a Christian or a theist, one who believes in God, who decided that I, a priori, right out of the gate, have the burden of proof to prove God's existence, and if I don't, then therefore I'm the one who is illogical? Why shouldn't you be the one to have to prove that God doesn't exist? And go ahead and have the debate there on neutral ground, first off, on whose burden of proof is it? Because what happens in our culture, I mean, it can be an interview on any news network or any gathering or personal conversation. Oh, you're a Christian? Well, doesn't it say, well, hold on, time out. Who said, who said, who's, who's deciding the rules of the debate? And just go there. And often they have no idea on how to come back from this. If you guys uh, want to go check this out on YouTube, it will be worth every bit of your about two hours. And I know all of y'all have two hours that you uh, need to spend on YouTube. But it's uh, a debate between William Lane Craig and Frank Zindler. It's in 1992. Um, so the quality, uh, the sound quality is still there, but you got kind of that VHS tracking, you know, back in the day of big hair bands and, you know, southern gospel ensembles and whatnot. But it's a brilliant argument. William Lane Craig totally takes down the atheist by saying all of your arguments presuppose that Christians have the burden of proof. And you give no argument on why that has to be the case. Undercuts all of them. Brilliant. Um, another response would be, and we will learn these in the weeks to come, devastating, devastating arguments. The five classical arguments for God's existence. Or, if, it's, if, if you're getting ready to go, it's a personal conversation, use what's called the fine-tuning argument. Anybody know what we're speaking about when we talk about the fine-tuning argument? I'm not sure if we've gone over that in here. It's, it's the argument that says, with all of the apparent randomness in the universe... The mathematical chance of life existing at all is called the anthropic principle. In the Greek, anthropos is man or mankind, so the, the, the mankind, humankind principle. And one thing that you, one illustration you could give is to say that life, the chance for life existing at all, especially on our planet, would be like balanced on a razor's edge. It is absolutely phenomenal the statistics that go into it, and if you want to also check out something called The Case for A Case for the Creator by Lee Strobel, the documentary, you can watch it for free on YouTube. Brilliant arguments. And you can just use nature to get them thinking. Um, number two would be agnosticism. The difference between atheism and agnosticism, kind of what I, I wasn't trying to put you on the spot, Sue, when I'm saying I'm sure you're saying there's no atheist. Here's here's the difference. Atheist says there, y'all tell me, there is no, there is no God, all right? The agnostic says, there may be, there may be not, I'm just not sure. 
Okay, now what do you have to have, if we're being really intellectually honest, heart-to-heart, head-to-head here, what do you have to have in terms of data, information, evidence, to be able to say such-and-such does not exist? Like if I say there is no gold on Venus. I mean, what's that? How much? Say there is absolutely zero no gold on Venus. Yeah, you basically have to have a total realm of knowledge about a particular thing in order to say that it does not exist. So if they say in terms of the whole universe, and even a lot of atheists now are positing the idea of multiverses, that makes it even more difficult for them. Like, okay, even more chance for God to exist out there somewhere and you not see him. So you have to have total evidence to be able to deny absolutely God's existence. So most atheists, if they're being honest, agnostic. All right. Uh, one response would be Pascal's wager, and he said, "Assume that God does not exist." All right. So imagine that we've been, like you said, Jesse, we've been duped, or it was just an honest mistake, and and we got it wrong. Jesus is not the Son of God, and so forth. God doesn't exist. Ultimately, there's going to be heat death in the universe. He's saying, if I'm a Christian, and it ends up not being true. I'm going to have the same fate as the atheist. Right? But if it is true, and you don't believe it, you lose everything. You lose your eternal soul. So, Pascal's wager is saying to an agnostic, say, look, and if you're talking to a real cerebral, um, big-worded, you know, intellectual person, you can say... What is the most logical option? <clears throat> most logical option would be to go with theism, to believe that God does exist. But for our thinkers here tonight, you probably said, okay, well, Jeff, what about 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19, where the Apostle Paul says that if there is no resurrection, we are above all men to be most pitied. Okay? Paul is talking from the standpoint of a sanctified, saved mind. Pascal's wager is a way to, I guess, crowbar into a lost mind, an unsaved mind, which will, and a lost person, unsaved person, like you're saying, Brenda, it boils down to pride, and pride is selfishness, right? So what you're saying, you're, you're trying to pry open the heart and the mind with Pascal's wager. You're not contradicting Scripture if you use it, but you're just trying to use the tools that will get the gospel in the door. Have any of you guys used this in conversation? The whole if God exists, if he doesn't exist? Not since college? Okay, oh Lord. College philosophy class. Use the wager because that's very interesting. But I have used God doesn't exist. What purpose do you have? Oh, okay. Alright. Okay. Yeah, that's a good that was just dependent on the person receiving that. Yeah, that's a great point. Did you hear what she said? You say it again. Uh, you, said, you said like if 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 God doesn't exist, what point what does your life have? Yeah. Like ultimately. And they they shot back. Well, what's your purpose? And I said, I think my purpose right now is to tell you that. How much time do you have? Awesome, awesome. The uh, I don't know if you guys have ever read. Y'all look pretty normal, but uh, the the. Um, 
agnostic philosopher Albert Camus, a French guy, and uh, Lindsay, all right, and uh, he said the quintessential or the ultimate philosophical question is whether or not I should commit suicide. First, it seems strange, but not when you actually think about it. If there is no God, or if there is probably no God, then ultimately everything, your family, your friends, your job, your accomplishments, workouts, your money, your home, your pets, it doesn't matter. So the question is, it's not going to matter, it doesn't matter, so why not just cut it off sooner than later, because now that I realize that it doesn't matter, it's going to make the rest of my life absolutely miserable, because there is no point, there is no purpose, there is no Hope. So he's brilliant because if God doesn't exist, then William Lane Craig Tracy talks about life is absolutely and totally absurd. It's absurd. No point, doesn't matter, and Camus is right. So, and just, just posit that. Just put that in. Say, look, I'm, I'm not saying, bro, I, I want you to go commit suicide or anything like that, you know, to your friend, but just say, seriously, ultimately it is of no importance if God doesn't exist. There is no hope. Uh, number three, polytheism which is many gods, um, one response you could bring up would be, <clears throat> it's an old logical rule called Occam's Razor. Um, it says basically that the simplest explanation must be the correct explanation. For example, if the universe was created by a higher power, then you don't need to go above one god. Think about it. This is where Hinduism... A lot of tribal religions, the logic breaks down. Because if you have a non-physical, spiritual being who's in control, you don't need but one. And we could go into that. But here's another one. Um, especially when you talk to a Hindu or a Buddhist, uh, they believe that, I guess we're kind of piling them together to get the big picture, that your present life right now it results from, somebody tell me, yeah, previous life. And how well you've done, how well you've kept caste in Hinduism and so forth. But here's the thing. They believe in a cyclical existence, which means it all goes back. This life was predicated on that life, and then that life was predicated on that life, and so forth and so on. But here's the thing. If life is a cycle, and everything is a, is a, is a mechanism. In other words, when you talk to Hindu or Buddhist, talk about grace. Do you, we realize as Christians that grace is God not giving us what we deserve? Throw the K word out and be like, it is me not receiving in this life and the next, my due karma. Throw it out. That is grace. Hinduism, Buddhism, not there. So, we ask if it's a cycle, and a cycle is always predicated by the previous life, what began the cycle? We all tracking together? If it's simply a circle and it all goes back, then you have to have something starting it, then it's no longer a cycle or a circle. And just just, just let them soak on that. Just let them soak. Um, and you don't want to go like, booyah, right after that. It wouldn't be the, the right thing to do. Um, here's another question. This is on a relational level. When you talk to someone who believes in many gods, ask the question, what about your gods do you admire? What is it that draws you to give them worship and devotion and honor? Also ask, um, how do you come to have a relationship or a personal connection relationship with your gods? And often it's based out of fear. 
It's simply a ladder that you have to climb. And most religions, there is no element of personal relationship other than a quasi-demonic experience that some of them, um, some of them get. In other words, appeal to God's relational qualities. When you're talking to a person who's involved, involved in um, polytheism, worshiping many gods, talk about how God relates as a father, how he is the husband of the widow, how he takes care of the orphan, about how all of the verses in the Old Testament, whatever the Holy Spirit brings to your mind, and say God is involved in our life, he wants to know us. Talk about Jesus Christ, which was God in the flesh. I mean, I'm telling you guys, often those of us who are raised in church Bible-based backgrounds, we lose sight of how, of how the gospel, the old time, like, you know, old time gospel, old school, Jesus is the Son of God, He came to pay for your sins, He died on the cross, rose from the dead, He's coming back to take His family home with Him. How that, when we get outside of a Christian context, that fits all of the missing pieces for these non-Christian religions, the relationship. How do I have my sin forgiven? They say do more. The Bible says done. So forth and so on. So if you come from a strong background and you say, well, what I've got to do, I've got to learn more philosophy and learn more terminology. I'm telling you, when you get the gospel and you say, how will the gospel fit here? I'm telling you, that's that's the knockout punch. And that's ultimately, it is the power of the gospel that God uses to to save people. Uh, Number four, pantheism. This is where it gets a little, little quirky, a little weird. Um, which is all is God and God is all. This is from uh, one of the Hindu Upanishads, which would be like their uh, the Hindu writings, their sacred books. And it says, all this universe indeed is Brahman, which is their word for God. From him does it proceed. Into him it is dissolved. In him it breathes. So let everyone alone adore him calmly. Everything proceeds from and returns to him as the web of the spider is emitted from and retracted into itself. Alright. Any issues quickly that the Bible would have with this that all is God and God is all? It applies in the direct face of Genesis. All right. He was outside of the creation. Exactly. Good. If this is true, what are you? You have Atman in you. In other words, Brahman, ultimate in Buddhism, God created, and in Hinduism, or that would be Hinduism, and created, and then you have a little spark of divinity. The New Age calls it, you know, your little God inside. And by the way, if I'm God... <coughs> It's a messed up universe, right? It just, I mean, to ask people just like, seriously, seriously, you know, especially if it's an American who's bought into his like, you know. Um, here's something from uh, Henry David Thoreau. Uh, he would also be a pantheist, and here's a little long statement, but I'll go ahead and read it so we don't brush over anything in Important, He says, as surely as the sunset in my latest November shall translate me to the ethereal world and remind me of the ruddy morning of youth, as surely as the last strain of music which falls on my decaying ear shall make age to be forgotten or, in short, the manifold influences of nature survive during the term of our natural life, so surely, my friend, shall forever be my friend and reflect a ray of God to me, and time shall foster and adorn and consecrate our friendship no less than the ruins of temples, in other words, God is all, and I am part of that. Uh, here is one response to pantheism. I believe you have this on your notes. It's from Matt Slick. Great website, especially 
If you're in school, be on this like white on rice. All right, it's carm.org, Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. <coughs> it's very succinct, very quick, great answers um, that you can find to give an answer for Christ. He says a huge problem with pantheism is that it cannot account for the existence of the universe. The universe is not infinitely old. We know that from science, right? With you know the space, spacecraft and whatnot, the expansion of the universe. It had a beginning. This would mean that God also had a beginning, but how can... This is so brilliant. But how can something bring itself into existence? This is impossible. So, this leaves us with the question of where God and the universe came from. Pantheism cannot answer this question, and it naturally leads to absurdities. But um, it's the same answer that atheism can't answer, is where did that spark that ignited the big bang come from? Yes. It all ends up at the same place. Yes, yes. Bingo. With atheism, you have an eternal universe, which it's always pushing the question back, where did the stuff come from that randomly exploded? And that to me, this, this I'm, I'm a Christian, I believe in the Lord. To me, that's a very, and this may just be showing the way my mind works, that's a very freaky option to me to believe that everything that is always has been. At least within Christianity, the, the, the concept of God, an unembodied mind, the Bible calls a spirit, always has existed. Therefore, he could exist forever and not grow old, right? Because he's not physical, not subject to the physical laws. But that there is an intelligence there that we believe. So therefore, there's a point and an explanation for the stuff that is. But in atheism, it's just all of this has always been here with no question of how it got here. So, anyway. We'll... Next point here. Uh, number five, probably the strangest, panentheism. <coughs> um, pan in Greek uh, would be like uh, all in, would be in in theism. In other words, all is within God. It is a world within God. God's actuality does change, but his potentiality does not. Honestly, I've never met a panentheist. Um, imagine that God was a gigantic man. The panentheist sees all of existence as flowing through his body, all of the universe, everything that exists is part of God's body, the world is contained in God's. I don't know if that means that we're part of the upper uh, gastric system, or whether we're the liver, or which kidney, I'm not really sure. Um, but here's a statement from Norm Geiser, great man of God, he says, Panentheists think of God as a finite, changing director of world affairs who works in cooperation with the world in order to achieve greater perfection in his nature. So in other words, God is his own trainer, to use a workout gym mentality. They believe the world is God's body. One response, and they also say that you can't ultimately know God, we could say, if God is unknowable, then how do you know that the world is within God? Okay? Just, just an honest question. You know, sometimes when you ask these things that automatically show the logical absurdity of their position, it's usually good to be like, look, I'm not trying to be a jerk, I'm just talking, you know, to throw something like that in there, just a personal filler. But then again, that depends upon your personality type, because some of you are very sweet, get asked that, and people are like, you know, that's a good point. Some of you can be like, 
if God's unknowable, then how do you know if the world is within God? You know, and they're going to take offense to that. So once again, it just goes back to being led by the Holy Spirit. Response two, and once again, there's millions of these, but these are just a few to be of help, would be if God is God, then shouldn't what is causing him to change get the title of God? He's working with the world, as Geisler said, to achieve greater perfection in his nature, but then again, the world is inside him. Number six, deism. Ms. Sharon. A world with an uninterested God. God created the world like you would wind up a clock and is now observing the world operate according to natural laws. In other words, there are no miracles. Uh, Thomas Jefferson would be a deist, and um, it was, it's said that he took out the parts in the New Testament that had anything to do um, with the supernatural. A deist would believe that God is ultimately powerful. There is one God, but... He doesn't intervene. Um, just ask him the question, have you heard of quantum mechanics? Okay, but What we know today of science um, is that at the very sub-nuclear level, it is probability, not certainty. Okay, and We don't really have a lot of time to break that down, but it's very interesting. You can go look up the videos once again on, on YouTube. But there's the split um, experiment with quantum mechanics. Imagine we're talking about particles so small that if we shone a light on them, the rays uh, from the light or the particle from the light would actually throw the particle off so you wouldn't be able to test um, its speed or direction at the same time. It's called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. You don't necessarily have to throw that out. But what it's saying at the very, it's its smallest level that we can discern scientifically, things are not operating according to a clock. So deism is not tracking <coughs> with modern science in any way. So we're not we're not saying that deists are morons or to throw that out, but honestly someone who would say that they believe in deism twenty first century needs to go read a science book. And that's just as, as nice and as honest as we can as we can say that. Um, and finally, theism of the world with an infinite God, you will find lots of theists in Franklin County, but you will find fewer Jesus followers. People who say that's right. I believe that God is, exists. Jesus is the Son of God. James 2.19, even the demons believe and tremble. And the response here, go through the way of the Master. Do you think you're a good person? Have you kept the Ten Commandments? And once they realize that they have not, if they're being honest, if you died right now, would you go to heaven or hell? Then once you walk them through that, do you know what God did so that no one would have to go to hell? And this is, I think, one of the greatest ways that we can speak to people who come from a theistic background but are not followers of Jesus Christ. So next week, I'm really pumped about it, guys. We're going to look at different approaches. So we're going to step back. And the subtitle for next week's lesson is How to Become an MMA Witness for Christ. Uh, we're going to be able to look at different... Wherever the conversation goes, you will have something that you can grab a hold of, some approach like these responses that will help you keep um, or point them point them to the Lord. So, any any questions or uh, thoughts before we pray tonight? And go to praise band practice and hear Tony throw down on the banjo like it's going out of style, like it's nineteen ninety nine. Nobody got that. Anyway, all right. Okay, Regina got it. All right, we're both 99 grads. Okay. On that note, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for uh, 
for the grace that you have given us in Jesus Christ. And we just pray, Lord, that you'll help us to, uh, to take these tool, the t- tools that you've given us by uh, great men and women of God who've put in the research hours to, to help us um, give a defense of your, of your gospel. And I thank you, Lord, for my friends who've come here tonight. We pray, God, that you would uh, help us to come on Sunday and bring somebody with us. You'd help us to be a missional church and missional followers of you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.